Baffling Combustions is a production of the Institute for Publishing Arts and Station Hill Press. If you want to reach us, email bc at stationhill.org. Baffling Combustions is edited by the Catskill Poetic Action Network. We're live on WCAA and on the Pacifica Radio Network. We're available on most podcast venues. And that's all I got. Enjoy our show. Welcome to another edition of Baffling Combustions with Andrew McCarran, Sam Truitt, and Sparrow as they plumb the mundane and cosmic strange. So here we are again for another session of Baffling Combustions and uh, continuing on our voyage into the beyond, a.k.a. a four-letter word, void. And uh, my name is Sam Truett. I am Sparrow. And my name is Andrew Kent McCarran. So I want you to listen. You know, in words, you know, speech, void is the non-reflexive verb. That non-reflexive verbs are a form of void um, in words. That is, that non-reflexive verbs connect a subject and an object. Can you give an example of a non-reflexive verb? Like, I bought an Uh, orange? Yeah, like, Dad hit Jimmy. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) You know, would be a non-reflexive, you know, hit. Would connect Dad and Jimmy. And... That, that it's a void because it's not a thing. In other words, it's between two things. Oh, I see. It's a connection. Yeah. Of, uh, but the verb itself is not a thing. Right. Because it's a verb. But what about a reflexive? Isn't a reflexive verb like, I shaved myself? Is that a reflexive verb? <laughs> isn't that also a void? I shaved myself. Isn't shaved in between me and myself? <laughs> yeah, I think that's a good um, good point. I okay. think the void is very close to home. You know, I think the void. I think we're made of a, of a nature of the void. That the human condition has a a void like resonance. Hmm. That's how it's described in existentialism, you know, this voidness, piece of the human condition that feels forever incomplete or uncontainable, unfillable, that Hmm. I think that emptiness, that loneliness-inducing emptiness, the void, Hmm. that it's something everyone has to wrestle with, but it's not going anywhere, it's like the First noble truth of Buddhism, you know, it's linked, it's inexorably woven through the existential fabric. 
Uh-huh. I think I take a lot of comfort in companionship on a certain state of voyage that I feel that I'm on with you all and with numerous people and everybody really in my life that we're all on a journey together, all on a ship together. And it might be into the void. Um, but I feel that the void is inextricably part of the journey and that there's a continuousness to it. Yeah. Interdimensionally. Yeah. And yeah, that we're part of the edge of a horizon of possibility if only we can um, keep it together as a species. Well, yeah, I mean, we're perched on the verge of extinction. Yeah. Or, thing, or at least the cataclysm. I mean, I don't know if that's exactly... It's just... very interesting, yeah, both at the precipice of an, of an extinction or a profound um, change in, in, you know, the history of the last 500 years significantly, but, you know centripetally, you know, increasing, you know, into the 21st century of ecological, you know, that we're filled. How do you say uh, voiding into our own nest? Um, mm-hmm. uh, fouling our own nest. I mean, you know, we're destroying this earth. And at the same time, I feel we're at the uh, precipice or, you know, the um, the point of connecting to profound levels of consciousness collectively, you know, and the possibilities in that direction. So I think that there are these two forces right now that kind of are coming to loggerheads. Yeah. Which way we're going to go. I was thinking the other day, like the way dinosaurs were too big, seemed like evolution decided that it was ridiculous to make creatures so big they're just not sustainable they're not gonna last same thing with woolly mammoths the giant uh, mammals like humans are maybe too smart maybe we are like hyper smart in a way that's not workable we're just too smart for this world and you know evolution has to try again with something you know a little less uh, intelligent gonna work better yeah. Well, at a certain evolutionary moment, we we developed in fungus. I think um, traveled the another evolutionary pathway. Oh, I see what you mean. That were related to fungus on some level, and if we were voided, we had an extinction. It's likely that um, mushrooms would, um, much as they did when the uh, comet hit the Earth, you know, the fungi, the fungal life continued to thrive. Really. I, I saw this like ad in the subway for something that said that sharks are older than dinosaurs. Sharks are tremendously successful species because maybe because they're in the sea, you can last longer in the sea, and you know they're efficient at what they do. They're brutal killers, <laughs> and they're sophisticated. You know they're not like fungi. That I mean, naturally, all those very very you know minimalist organisms are going to last forever and cockroaches but sharks are you know pretty complex pretty highly evolved species and also very old i don't know if they're the oldest but of the of the evolved species but maybe uh-huh. can i read my i i wrote a poem 
I realized the other day, I just published this new book of, or kind of pamphlet of poems, this friend of mine in uh, Berlin, who's a Russian, uh, he just published this book. It's called Civilization and its Disc Contents. It's like the contents of its discs. You know, it's like discontents, like a pun on Freud. So he published this originally translated into Russian, bilingual, English and Russian. Anyway, this is one of my poems. It's called Advice. Avoid, avoid. Anyway, that's it. That's it. Avoid, one word, A-V-O-I-D. And then the new line is A, void, two different words, you know. I mean, I, I imagine someone has written that in the world, but I don't know. If, Do uh, you feel, Sparrow, as though you've lived that? I Yeah, I think I was thinking about this guy. There used to be this guy, George, who lived in Phoenicia, in the Phoenicia Hotel, I think. And he was this kind of desperate sort of alcoholic and sort of a friend of mine. And sweet guy, Greek. And one time he said, Sparrow, you never stop thinking. Like he knew me well enough to know that my mind was constantly in action. And I think he meant that. It's pretty. He was kind of a, a Zen Buddhist. I think he meant it as a big insult. <laughs> Not to disparage you, Sparrow, in any sense or, you know, you know. But in relation to your poem, Avoid, Avoid, I feel as though, you know, that puts the finger on, you know, one of the core neurotic uh, throbs of, you know, our contemporary psychosis. You know, and that, no, I don't mean to be, you know, grandiose, but the way in which people live is maybe kind of a dance of avoiding the void. Yeah, I mean, it feels like that. It feels like that. Yeah. Particularly all this uh, uh, binge-watching of everything. Binge-watching, maybe that, uh, maybe accumulation of goods, um, accumulation of experiences, um, drug food. use. Al um, food, alcohol. Yeah, addiction. Yeah. I mean, it, like the whole yeah. society is really addictive and kind of predicated on addiction. And maybe yeah. war, you know, like, like basically there was a Great Depression in the 30s and then they had World War II and they just figured out, well, this is the way to avoid a depression, just endlessly have a war and endlessly prepare for war. And this yeah. will stimulate the economy. It'll give us a kind of cocaine rush of capitalism i think the a lot of the void is also related actually to what we've spoken of a little bit which is loneliness hmm. you know the way in which a large portion of you know this continent and other places around the world this idea of the single family structure oh. um you know, the segmentation of people into families and, you know, I think, you know, it fosters isolation in people's lives. People tend to be happier in, you know, in kind of groups, you know. 
yeah. really more a sense of sort of, yeah, I've always been attracted to, you know, life on a ship. Oh, really? And, yeah, and the kind of camaraderie of that um, enterprise, yeah. The Sea Org? Scientologists? Yeah, Scientology. They have a big boat you can go on. Oh, really? <laughs> I should join. In this, like, paramilitary core of people that are all working together for the higher good of Scientology. You sign billion-year contract. Billion? Yeah. That could be a mistake. Insanity. We haven't talked about Void in terms of numbers and things like that. And right. also there's cosmic voids. Yeah, well, I was interested in the cosmological use of Void. It's the space between galaxies. Is that right? That's the literal meaning of it? Yeah, it's this it's space where there is no immediate galaxy activity. Hmm. The, the, right, like the filaments of galaxies. Yeah, it's the right. space between that kind of uh, structure of the universe that that um, looks like neural, neuron patterns, it looks like a neuron map of our mind, but that empty space between the webs of galaxies. We now know through the the work, thanks to um, Stephen Hawking, that that um, that void is full of energy, full um, of dark matter, maybe full of the energy of dark matter, right? Hmm. Well, the void has less, like fifteen percent. You know, there's some less dark matter in the uh, in the void. Like oh, wow. the nature of the void is still unknown. For <laughs> sure. Well, I mean, I think maybe, and also I was going to read from this uh, biography of uh, Paul McCartney that I just finished. Plus, I was going to talk about uh, Descartes and, you know, the meditations of Descartes, which are all about predicating a void, as I understand. Yeah, uh, that sounds good. You know, we should now talk about what we're talking about. I wanted to say something. That was... um the following there's a there's a psychiatric term it's not in the dsm-5 it's not in the diagnostic statistical manual of mental disorders but it is in some of the psychiatric literature i was looking through and that's the following diagnostic category which i believe has been actually proposed for the dsm but was rejected and that's um void syndrome and void syndrome if i understand it correctly has to do with an attraction to the uh, to the void. It's referred to um, by some as the call of the void. <laughs> it, ah. it would uh, be typified um, as the following. For example, many years ago, I was uh, walking around Napoli. I was walking around Naples, Italy. Oh. And, and I um, walked up this hill, and uh, I looked down this, just this air shaft. Um, they just dropped precipitously down a cliff. And, you know, there's almost an attraction to getting as close as you can to the edge, mm-hmm. looking over. Um, and I, I was intrigued by this notion of the call of the void. And just um, by coincidence, I was reading um, a few essays written by Oliver Sacks, the late neurologist who died in 2015. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I think in 2019, a book of his was published posthumously, his final writings, in a collection mm-hmm. called Everything in Its Place, First Loves and Last Tales, published in 2019. 
And he touches upon this at the beginning of a short essay, a three-page essay. Uh, by the way, these essays constitute his last will and testament. Wow. This is what he sat down to write when he knew he was going to die. He spent his final few months writing these short essays. And I want to read the, the first paragraph from the essay entitled Nothingness. Nature abhors a vacuum, and so do we. The idea of a void, of emptiness, nothingness, spacelessness, placelessness, all such lessness, is at once abhorrent and inconceivable. And yet it haunts us in the strangest, most paradoxical way. As Beckett writes, nothing is more real than nothing. Well, he mm. doesn't really touch upon the attraction to it, but he does mention it's paradoxical, um, in that it, it does um, really uh, bewitch us, bewilder us. I'm intrigued by this notion of call, call of the void. Yeah, um, that's great. But what exactly yeah, is the call of the void? Is that like the urge to commit suicide or not necessarily, I guess? Not necessarily, um, but I think it, it, I mean, it could involve that potentially, as I understand it. Mm. You know, Freud and civilization and its discontent. Right, right I was just thinking of that, right? The right. oceanic feeling. Yeah. I don't know if that's voidness, but um, he, he talks does. in the beginning. He says he has some friend that has the oceanic feeling. And and it's the very beginning of the book where Freud starts sort of trying to analyze what is the oceanic feeling. And there's a footnote that says this person is some kind of a mystic, like a Ramakrishna devotee or something, if I remember correctly, Ooh. is Sufi. Like it seems like the oceanic feeling is actually some kind of mystical state. But since Freud kind of pathologizes everything, he makes it sound like it's some kind of sick neurosis. It's interesting for me, if I can interject just briefly, is that the call of the void, you know, for me has different faces, you know, that are associated with that phrase, you know. An obvious one is call of the wild. And I feel in some ways that Jack London would be sympathetic to the notion that part of the call of the wild is the call of the void, and also the call of the deep. And I, and I was thinking more like in the sense of the oceanic in that thought, to the extent that, um, you know, there is something called the rhapsody of the deep, which scuba divers can enter into if you get down into a certain depth and the conditions are right and so on and so forth. And if, you know, there's some visual attribute also, but you can get into sort of a rhapsody of the deep and lose track of yourself. And oh, uh, many divers. Yeah, I have a friend, Alan Bridge, who is sort of woven into my new, into my Washington, D.C. family and also New York past. And he got into a jam down in the Caribbean of that nature. And he was with a diving buddy, and the diving buddy had to hold Alan's head in his hands and look through their face masks into each other's eyes to sort of call Alan back wow. from the, um, you know, edge of what would have been oblivion. He was totally out of it and wandering way off course, et cetera, et cetera. That's fascinating, Sam. That's really fascinating. Yeah. Freud believed if I... If I remember civilization and its discontents um, accurately, that we have this attraction to a pre-ego state, and that on some level it was all downhill, 
once we realized we were autonomous from our mother's body. This is the oceanic feeling. Yeah. Know. Yeah. And we, we, you know, we want to return to, um, you know, maybe at some cellular level or some unconscious level. We want to return to that egoless consciousness. Ooh. And that, I think that would be his explanation behind the, uh, the call of the void that it's actually, um, understandable. It's not, I don't think he so much pathologizes it. But one thing that he does is he retrospectivizes it. Mm. Instead of it being really a call, which seems to be something that's ahead of his interpretation would be more that it's um, adolescent or, or infant pathology to it. I don't think he pathologizes it. I don't. He sees it as a, a yearning that that most psyches have. That, and I, I think if I understand correctly. It does have something to do with what he refers to in the work beyond the pleasure principle as the death drop. Yeah, yeah, I was going to bring that up. The death wish. Yeah. Sometimes it's called. That, that Freud. Uh, yeah. Freud was constantly wrestling with this question: Is there a death wish? Is there not a death wish? He couldn't decide. That that you know we 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 really we we seek to eliminate ourselves. Uh, Sam, I remember when we were um, trying those podcasts on our personal life stories that didn't quite take off. Well, bracket that for a second. I just am waiting for time because I, I sort of feel like it's an editing job and I have an idea for it, but I apologize for having, um, you know, kept that in our sack. You said something that I, I have been borderline obsessed with <laughs> in the podcast devoted to yourself. And that was that one of your life goals was to dismantle Sam Truitt, hmm. or to peel away Sam Truitt. I forget the language we use, but I I understand Thanatos as having something to do with uh, that endeavor, that goal. The death wish. Yeah, the death wish. Yeah, it's not necessarily about self harm, but it's this yearning to return in many ways to that state whence we came. Yeah, and I sort of think the state that we are that our true our true nature yes yeah yes it's intriguing yeah i, I do feel and, and i think the call is a form of song <laughs> that that's the form the call takes hmm. that sounds right like the sirens in uh in the odyssey that are calling sort of driving men mad with their siren call. It's kind of erotic, yeah. I think, in that case. Yeah, but it's also possible that the whole cosmos is calling, or, you know, the whole cosmos is mm. singing mm, to right. us. Well, people believe that. I think the uh, the music of the spheres was a concept, you know, that people believed at least... You know, through much of recorded history, I believe that I think it's from the Greeks, this idea that I think it's a literal idea that uh, back when they believed that the solar system was the entire universe, it was populated by these planets. The planets sang and they made beautiful music together, harmonic music. They harmonized in some literal way. I believe this is what people thought that. 
if you could hear it, you could hear Jupiter singing, Saturn singing, Uranus singing, and all together it made it this, you know, perfect uh, harmony that uh, was the highest uh, music, I guess. Yeah, it's a, prop- a profound proposition um, <laughs> that I think is, is attributed to Pythagoras. Is the notion, Sparrow and Sam, that we're called to the, to the universe, like removed out of our bodies? To Is there some... You mean by the music of the spheres? Yeah, that's right. Is it calling us to some higher evolution, you mean? Or does it, is it like the call of the void? Yeah, I don't really know anything about it. I don't know. I've never really read about it. I've just had this I, sense, seen references to it, and I believe it was considered literal. But maybe it's in uh, Milton? Maybe as late as Milton, they still believe that? I'm not sure. Well, I do believe at a like species level. The degree to which each of us can help turn the that which we commonly value in this world, in the Western world, away from consumption, you know, hmm. broadly speaking, and toward insumption or, you know, valuing <laughs> just the basic proposition of consciousness and ability to apprehend the innate musical nature of existence itself and to really change the way we are with each other and uh yeah etc for sure Mm. and you know have more dance parties i believe (laughs) yeah i don't know have we discussed uh experience of john cage when he went into this chamber at mit i think it was where Supposedly, it was a perfect silence he heard for the first time in his life. Uh, it was a chamber, an anechoic, I believe the word is, like opposite of an echo chamber, an anechoic chamber. And he went in and to see what is silence, what is true silence. And he heard two sounds. He talks about this in a lot of places, but he has this book, Silences, where Maybe it's the first place he, he has written about it where it's published. And he hears two sounds in the silence. This is kind of the modern kind of scientific version of the music of the spheres. And one sound is the circulation of his blood. And another sound is the sound of his nervous system. One is a low sound and one is a high sound. It's not the, it's not the heartbeat. It's the circulation of the blood. I, I was reading about this lately, and there was some footnote on the Internet. Someone said, actually, it's impossible to hear your nervous system working. That's not accurate. But this is what Cage says. And anyway, the main point is that there's no silence in the universe, at least while you're there in your Heisenbergian way. By being there, you cannot hear silence because you are producing music that that people well, are innately musical. People are in- yeah, yeah, musical yeah. instruments, in a sense. Yeah. And that, um, yes, yeah, silence is a concept. Yeah. Which we yeah. touched on, and beautifully, Sparrow, your articulation of Cage's experience, um, you know, in that soundproof booth, is an echo to our own beginning, in that we touched on this 
I think, in our discussion of Lucretius's swerve with Clinamen. Oh. Huh. You mean our I first so. podcast? <laughs> I think that that was. You know what you what you said about um, John Cage reminds me of this quotation from Thomas Hobbes, and I have it here. Here it is: "That which is not body is no part of the universe, and because the universe is all, that which is not part of it is nothingness, and consequently nowhere." Hmm. I can't say I understand that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's full of double negatives. <laughs> It's it's kind of like saying nature abhors a vacuum. Oh, so that was Hobbes. That was Thomas Hobbes, and it, it, it's in the um, short essay by um, Oliver Sacks. He, oh, he goes on to write about uh, how we abhor nothingness uh, most manifestly, at least in his experience of the world and in his experience as a human and doctor, when we experience um, the transient annihilation of um, anesthesia, or when, like, we sleep on an arm, crushing its <laughs> and briefly extinguishing neural traffic. The, In other words, our arm falls asleep. Our arm falls ex- asleep. The experience, though very brief, is an uncanny one, because our arm seems to be no longer ours. Mm. And that, that this is not a, for the vast majority of people, this is not a pleasant experience. Mm-hmm. It reminds me of this thing. When I was in fifth grade or sixth grade, we used to read these high-class books to show off how brilliant we were. I was in this very smart class, the intellectually gifted class, and there was a book called Eleven Blue Men. I think the guy's name was something like Burton Ruscha. He used to write for The New Yorker. He was kind of the Oliver Sacks of his generation. And he tells the story about a guy is in his living room smoking a cigar and he smells this terrible smell. He says to his wife, what is that awful smell? And his wife says, that's you. You are burning. He had dropped an, a, a coal, you know, like a, he dropped part of the burning part of his cigar onto his arm and his arm was burning and he had leprosy. He didn't know it. But that's how we discovered he had leprosy, is that his arm was burning and he couldn't feel it. You know, it's, it's, it's you know, when you're, uh, whatever, 11 years old reading this, absolutely horrifying. I just had this memory. I can't believe it. It's, uh, I think it, it may be a seminal event from my early years. It uh-huh. just came back to me. I must have been about six, five, six or seven. And I fell asleep in my arm, as Oliver Sacks described in his essay. And I remember waking up and having no sensation in it, and it really felt like someone else's arm, dead weight, mm. just screaming. Oh, really? You were terrified? I was terrified, running into my parents' room. <laughs> and my mm-hmm. father knew what to do. He just started rubbing his hands on my arm, you know, so the blood would return, mm. and restored the feeling. It all happened quickly, but it was a profound sequence. Hmm. And maybe that's why that Burton Rouché story is so terrifying, because when you're 11 years old, you've had that experience. I don't remember it in my life uh, the way you do, but it must have happened to me that my arm fell asleep so early in my life that I'd never experienced it before, and I didn't know what it was, and I had that, that terror of, you know, maybe all my um, limbs are going to fall off, maybe. 
I no longer have control of my body. It's a voidness, right? Yeah, I mean, according to Oliver Sacks, I wouldn't, it's not, you know, my definition of a voidness, but I can see, yes, it is. I think it's also interesting that from a Vedic standpoint, that a state of health is a state of bodilessness. Huh. Namely, that, you know, your body is all just humming along with the song hmm. of the universe, and you don't need to, you don't even, don't have to think about it. Right, that you're not conscious um, of it. You're, you're not conscious of it, yeah. It does yeah. seem like that when you see kids. I was just with a friend of mine in Brooklyn the other day, and she has a two-year-old or something like a two-year-old. And uh, we took them to a little park slope uh, playground, and all these young kids that must have been staying after school in some sort of daycare were racing around the playground and then sometimes jumping up to me, you know, climbing over to me on their machinery that they're climbing on and asking me if I'm Santa Claus. We got into a Santa Claus type conversation. But the way these kids run around, you know, it is almost like they're flying. It's almost like uh -huh. they almost like they don't have bodies. Like their mind says, go 20 feet over and they just go. You know, it's not like a like a 68-year-old person like me who has to get up out of the chair, make sure my knees are still working, walk slowly over, you know, like, they just, the thought is the motion. It's one act. They're like yeah. arrows. Uh-huh. It's exciting. Fluid. So, yeah, fluid and bodiless, kind of. Mm -hmm. I mean, I don't think they see themselves as bodiless, but... And it was funny because my friend's little kid, Hart, he is so young, he's, he doesn't really know to run. He's standing in the playground. He's looking at all these kids running around and he starts, you can see him like articulating this thought in his mind. Oh, I guess that's what kids do. They run around. They run from one place to another. I guess that's what makes you a kid. You know, the way younger kids look at older kids for guidance. So he starts uh -huh. kind of tentatively running around, just trying to following them, trying to be like them. And he has to sort of convince himself that there's some reason to run around. Two-year-old state doesn't really need anything. <laughs> yeah. He's probably doing a little bit of what we're all doing, which is kind of clambering around the void. <laughs> I thought you were saying imitating our superiors. Like, you know, uh -huh. we're quoting all these no. great people. The way he's uh, imitating the four-year-olds, the way two-year-olds imitate four-year-olds, we imitate Oliver Sacks and the yogic thinkers and John Cage. Uh -huh. We look to the older kids and imitate them. No, it's interesting, yeah. I, yeah. I did want to circle back, Andrew, to your experience of looking down the shaft, and that is the one I had in Ireland. Mm -hmm. On the western coast of Ireland, you know, at the cliffs of Moher, I was tramping around out there in a, in a drizzly, you know, misty day, forbidding slightly, and walked the cliffs of Moher, the length of the cliffs of Moher. And at a certain point, there was a rock that was um, thrust out over the edge of the cliff. Mm. 
you know, this is a, um, I don't know, 300, 400, 600. I don't know how high the cliffs of Moha are, but they're profound mm. and a very void-like experience. And I laid myself down on that stone. Whoa. Like, you know, like, like really, um, the sweat coming into the palms of my hands and just went out over the edge and put my head over. Wow. Yeah. Like, almost jumped, kind of. No, I was just looking over the edge, but it was a rock that was protruding out. And I have no idea how well, um, leveraged it is into the earth, you know, right. everything is shifty. Um, yeah. That was very profound. Yeah. I had a um, student many years ago, really nice young man, bright. He ended up going to Cornell, uh, <laughs> it, like Sparrow. And yes. like Sparrow, he didn't finish. He got through his first year. Is that right? Then yeah. what happened to him? Well, I'm getting there, and it's a tragic end. Yeah, I get that feeling. But he um, was a very virtuous young man. Um, he volunteer a lot. Um, out in the community and um, always asking people how they were doing, always willing to lend a helping hand. Yeah, a wonderful, wonderfully virtuous disposition. Uh, kind young man, kind. And he went off to Cornell and he came back to New York for one of the um, breaks during his first year. And he ingested um, um, a large amount of psilocybin oh. with a close friend of his. And the close friend later described to me what happened. So they had just about the best day imaginable, uh, making sense of things, laughing, walking around, you know, tramping through Central Park. And then at some point later that evening, he returned home and, and uh, jumped out of a window. All indications suggest that it wasn't an act of self-hatred. Like he, he felt called to the void, called to jump out. He felt. Hmm had um, reached the tower beyond which there was nothing left of time. Hmm. What is that, a quote from something? A paraphrase from Wallace Stevens. I think it's from the um, oh, the Credences of Summer. Is that, oh, okay. that, I think the line is, uh, yeah, the tower beyond which there is nothing left of time. Beautiful and profound line of poetry. But I think this young man reached that, and I think voidness, or you're entering the void, had something something to do with it. It's kind of ironic because, you know, one of the big occupational hazards of Cornell is what they used to call, perhaps still call, gorging out. Because there are these big gorges that are, you know, what cliffs that are in the campus. As you walk from the main campus to North Campus, you pass over this bridge, which at that time, when I went there in the early 70s, um, you know, it was a pretty low railing. And uh, and if you, you leap over that railing, you die. And Cornell is a very high stakes, high pressured school where uh, people flunk out like I did. And uh, there's a lot of anxieties you're in the Ivy League, but it's the youngest Ivy League. It's not those. While I was at Cornell, I took a trip with a friend of mine who was in, was in love with some woman in Radcliffe when there was still a Radcliffe. So we, we hitchhiked up to um, 
Harvard together, to Radcliffe, which was the female sister school of Harvard. And hanging out at, at Radcliffe, it's like, wow, these people are relaxed. You know, you get into Harvard or Radcliffe, Radcliffe no longer exists, and you're in. You know, it's like being in a gentleman's club. You just sit there and kind of contemplate. Whereas at Cornell, everybody's a little nervous that they're not going to make it. And there's a lot of uh, academic pressures on you. Yeah. So people jump off. I've walked in those places in the wintertime, and they're precarious. Yeah, mm-hmm. precarious. I mean, now I think there's big, tall uh, fences around them. So, Andrew, your former student who, you know, walked out the window, what was the quantity of mushrooms that they did? <laughs> I, that I don't know. I have no idea. Yeah. In other words, it's really unpleasant to think of somebody doing psilocybin mushrooms and being young and, you know, and entering that threshold. And for that to have been a causal element in him walking out a window. I mean, I don't know. I may be projecting onto the story. Um, there are definitely um, lacuna. There are definitely um, holes that I, I haven't been able to fill. But as I understand it, Boys. what people have shared with me, it was um, surmised that uh, it was done um, almost as like a ritual of sorts. Really? It wasn't like confusion or or I want to end this. It was um, like I just reached the level of gnosis, the highest level of gnosis that I'm going to reach in my life. The highest level of understanding of knowledge. Wisdom, knowledge, all of that insight. And I'm ready to return to the void. I'm ready uh, mm. yeah, to, um, to go back. Yeah. Forward. Yeah. And sometimes I very would really nice. want to come to a, a, a deeper understanding. It's a very interesting story. It sort of also, though, reminds me a little bit of that, I think, English romantic trope. The, uh, a guy named Southby, who was a male, English male poet who committed suicide at an early age, um, you know, like 20 or, you know, something like that, um, and was considered to be a kind of an ideal, like, um, you know, within a sort of foppish thought, the idea was that, you know, a short life with glory, I think, was the, um, you know, choice of Achilles. Oh, Achilles, yeah. Well, the romantics uh, died young. They were a lot like rock stars. They looked like rock stars. They had long hair. They were kind of uh, hedonistic, had sex with anybody they felt like. They were heroes. The the uh, the parallels with the rock stars who, of course, uh, typically or famously died at the age of 27. Oh, the 27 Club. Yeah. I've looked it up on uh, Google, on Wikipedia. You know, there's a large number, I guess. Um, what is her name? That singer that died. Amy Winehouse. Amy Winehouse, maybe the most prominent recent member. Kurt Cobain. Uh, yeah, there, I mean, there's lots and lots of them, but most of them are really obscure people. Excellent. Yeah, Jimmy, Janice. I, w- I wrote a song, I think, called Jimmy, Janice, and Jim. So uh, I've always found the proposition of a long life uh, with wisdom to be more attractive, actually. Same here. Yeah. I um, 
same here. And I've always loved older people. Hmm. That's interesting. I've always been drawn to older people, you know, to this day. I always, I, I like having at least one person over 90 <laughs> who I have some contact with. Oh. Maybe you should go visit my dad, my 102 year old dad. He's I've been meaning incredibly to social. I've yeah. been meaning to ask you, but I was, I thought that maybe that would be weird. Um, not weird in any sort of perverse sense, but maybe you would be like, well, why do you want to do that? But if, if you're offering, I would love to. Yeah, that'd be great. Cause I'm always looking for new people to, for him to meet. And even though he can't really see much, he can't hear much. He, um, he likes to tell stories. He's, he can be extremely entertaining and sort of inspiring too. He's, uh, within his world of being an old, the last Bolshevik, as he calls himself. He uh, is kind of like a spiritual figure. Do you, um, Pharaoh, Mm. as his attachment and um, patterning from this life begins to dissipate a little bit, do you you feel that he has more of a sense of uh, connection to the void? Get glimpses of him articulating that? I don't. I mean... I don't know if I told you this story. He, he told me this really weird thing, uh, like two or three months ago. He said, he said something like, um, there's a hundred czarist soldiers outside the czar's palace. And they're saying, quiet, quiet. The czar is sleeping. Then there's a hundred Hasids, Hasidic Jews, deeply religious Jews, standing outside the rabbi's home, and they and they say he said it in Yiddish, but I don't re- I don't really know Yiddish. But he said in Yiddish he said, "Shushin, shushin, the Rebbe is schleffen." You know, quiet, quiet, the rabbi is sleeping. And I said, "What is that?" <laughs> you know, it didn't sound like a joke. It didn't sound like a memory. He said. It's just a little movie in my mind. You know, this is one of the things he does. He can't read anymore. He can't watch TV. He sits there and kind of has these thoughts, some of which take the form of little kind of playlets or, or short movies. But also I mean, weirdly like a uh, parable, you know, it yeah, has like it, a little yeah, bit like of a, a Kafka feeling, actually. Yeah, you're right. It's true. Yeah. Yeah, and of course, Kafka it compasses, um, it compasses, you know, the devotion, both, you know, to state, which is the czar, yeah, and to the religion, you know, state, you know, state and church, uh, you know, yeah. which is the Rebbe. Yeah, and some kind of parallel between the two devotions which is unspoken and there is something faintly humorous about it the idea of this powerful figure being asleep and all the subordinates having to respect that sleep something a little silly about the the, like the father is asleep and all the children must still pay obeisance to him but i mean i don't know if that's exactly the void but he does he, I guess he's maybe a little bit enter, entering his unconscious or subconscious 
a lot. You know, he remembers girlfriends he had, the Greek woman he he almost married, except he didn't like her cooking. The woman that he was going to marry in Chicago, but he came back to see her. He'd been gone a few months, and there was something about he could tell. I think she wouldn't have sex with him, and she he said why, and she said she had just had an abortion, and and it was someone else's child, and just that this sort of horrible kind of mutual embarrassment and shame and pain at that moment. I mean, I hope he doesn't mind me telling these stories. I think he'll never know that I'm telling them. So, you know, things he never told me his whole life, he's now telling me intimate stories. It's more like an unconscious than a void, I, I would say. I mean, he's an atheist, so he, I think, feels he's going into the void. <laughs> Fascinating. It's interesting to have a 102-year-old father. I find it very compelling. Yeah. And sort of heroic. Quiet, quiet. My father is sleeping. Yeah. <laughs> well, I don't have to do that because he's so deaf. So I did want to, um, you know, I would feel remiss not to add in a few things that I wanted to say about the void. The cosmic voids, which we talked about a little bit. And my understanding is that the cosmic voids are discernible through the process of baryon acoustic oscillations, that one can measure those within our visible universe, you know, which isn't so very far. And um, that those, the measuring of those oscillations and the fact that there are oscillations, that the universe is constituted of these wave patterns, I believe goes a long way toward my assertion, you know, that the universe is, is a nature of song. Oh, you mean um, these oscillations are kind of musical? Well, they're measured as waves, yeah, and as oscillations, mm. yeah, as acoustic oscillations. Hmm. Yeah. There are like uh, strange little messages we're getting from outer space. I think that's not, I think that's a real scientific truth that sometimes they get these little sort of uh, Morse code type messages or pulsations from other galaxies and nobody knows quite what they are, which kind of constitute like little songs. Yeah, not to date this podcast, but Harry Reid died. And it was due to Harry Reid and his, you know, putting 25 million or so dollars toward UFO research and also toward divulgement of uh, information held by DOD regarding UFOs, you know, that the U.S. government has now acknowledged that there are UFOs. I know, that's so crazy. Like in the midst yeah. of all the kind of craziness of our modern world, that was under Biden, I think. It was very recent, but the the, the government just casually mentioned, oh, yes, there are definitely UFOs. And they, there was uh, some footage widely circulated. I saw some, some of it um, that featured these unidentified, unidentified flying objects. And they're really remarkable, these little spheres. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and it's like uh, taken by like naval air force or something like that. These are real government planes, and the guys are saying to each other, "Whoa, look at that! <laughs> the heck is that?" Yeah, it's so weird. Yeah. And my question, more than anything else, is if there were, you know, the insertion of interstellar beings, um, you know, who've come here to visit, what is their music? <laughs> you know, what yeah. kind of music do they play? It'd be funny if it was just like in those 1950s films with the theremin, you know. <laughs> Cosmic void. Now, is that mm-hmm. the space between galaxies? Yeah, it's the space between filaments of galaxies. Ah. I mean, the um, the structure of the universe as we know it and as we're able to illuminate it is a, is, is a, a like a neural pathways, you know, of the mind. <laughs> you know, they're very, they're very similar. Um, you know, and I believe that they're the handwriting of, you know, this... Uh, the architecture of what we're potentially, you know, about to enter into communion with. Um, you know, I think the human species has huge potential. We're at such a uh, delicate balancing point. Yeah, I mean, I listen to this radio show uh, late at night sometimes, America Coast to Coast, that's like mostly involved with the paranormal. And it seems to be the consensus now, the among UFO researchers that it, that we don't know where these uh, UFOs come from. They might come from the past. They might come from the future. Like this, the idea that they come from other planets is not at all certain. That's part of the uncertainty. Could be they're all being made in China. Could be that the U.S. government themselves creates it. Could be some kind of alternate reality. I think that, anyway, that's my understanding, that no longer is it assumed that there's little green men, as they used to call them, uh, from Mars originally, that are in these things. Well, I mean, you know, I guess in terms of, unless, you know, you've had some experience with UFOs, um, you know, like seeing one or, you know, et cetera, um, it is a, another proposition that we've devised in order to cover over the void hmm. a bit. In other words, oh, um, you know. That's brilliant. I, I know that when, when I was maybe about 18 or 19, I became really obsessed with drawing that alien and painting that alien face with the almond eyes. You mean from the cover of Communion? Yeah, similar. The, right, the Whitey Striver, was that his name? Yeah, I read that book recently. I did too. I thought it was actually pretty well written. Yeah, I mean, the guy is a kind of an unusual guy. Like He's sort of pretending like, oh yeah, I'm just a normal person who rented a cabin in upstate New York. But he's like the corresponding secretary of the Krishnamurti Society or something like that. He's some kind of a mystical, a professional mystic. Yeah, and it's a gripping, at least the first chapter is gripping. I could see why it was a New York Times bestseller. But that alien faith became an icon that I drew, I think, much as Sam is describing, to try to give um, an iconographic symbol 
to the void, to that which is beyond, or that which is, you know, the, the cosmic void, um, the unknown. If you, if you, I don't know if you read the whole book, but they, he described, he very meticulously described these beings that he saw to a friend of his who was an artist, and that's where that cover comes from. So a lot of work went into precisely you know, depicting these creatures, that he, little creatures that he saw. You know, it was uh, just last summer, last June, we were driving around the very spot where it happened. We got lost. Yeah? In Pine Bush, New York, which is between Newpaltz and Kerhunksen, right in the foot of the uh, Schwangans, Pine Bush, the uh, epicenter of paranormal UFO sightings. It's also uh, has the greatest... Um, concentration of members of the KKK. I don't know if there's a correlation between. <laughs> yeah. always, I have always been struck by that confluence, that bizarre confluence. I'm not suggesting any sort of causal model here. Yeah, but it could. Well, they tend to be. Uh, these UFOs appear in very rural areas, and so do the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> and uh, I think they tend to appear to Caucasian people, no? I mean, I would hope that they would abduct every race. <laughs> Maybe that's why, you know, that white people's uh, sperm count is uh, dropping precipitously. Just white people, white men. And no one can explain it. And maybe it's because of these uh, abductions. There's somehow. I know we're on a well, it could also be, you know, the call of the void. Yeah. <laughs> Not to discount the possibility that much of this is real, but Sam, you're mentioned before of a symbolic level. Alien, the alien, uh, the extraterrestrial has become a symbol, an icon for the void. I think is really interesting. That really resonated with me. Hmm. So what mm-hmm. happened, Andrew, when you were in that spot? Was it totally vibing with the uh, otherness? It was very dark. I remember uh, that and poorly lit. And Elisa, uh, my wife and I were talking about, oh, it makes sense that there's so many UFO sightings. Uh, you know, oh, I see, because you actually can see the sky. You can see the sky. The, um, the stars were quite vivid. And there's just a stillness and a darkness that, like we saw a fox guarding across the road. And, you know, we were very uh-huh. aware of it. Well, that's, that itself is a kind of UFO. Seeing a fox is rare. I saw a beautiful fox on my parents' lawn the day after Christmas with just a plush red fire just, red tail. Like, and it was large, mm-hmm. almost like a small coyote. I've seen like mangy foxes over the years. The other day. Yeah, just two days ago. Wow. Yeah, I think it's meaningful. Sometimes, you know, there's these websites you can go on. They're like, I don't know what they're called, like shamanic animal websites. So you see an animal. You see an armadillo. Like down the street from us, there was a rattlesnake. Uh, I've never seen a rattlesnake. I've lived here 20 years. Never seen a rattlesnake. And my wife was walking down the road and she saw it right in front of our neighbor's uh, driveway. And, you know, then you go home and you uh, look up rattlesnake on the website. And it tells you like the psychic meaning, you know, the snake sheds its skin. It means that you are going through a transition, I don't know, so that kind of thing. Many thanks for joining us on this edition of Baffling Combustions and our ongoing investigation of the uncanny and wondrous. 
and please join us next time, and remember to stay tuned and strange.